We have a single verse of scripture to look at this morning in preparation for our sermon. The scripture can be found in the book of Philippians, chapter 4 and verse 9. On your pew Bibles, it's page 1044 at the bottom of the page. It continues on to 1045. That's Philippians 4, verse 9. These are the words of the inspired writer Paul. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Whether we think about it or not, we live in a world that loves transformation. In fact, we live in a country that loves to see things transformed. Does that sound like a strange comment to you to make? Does that strike you as odd a little bit when we think about it? Because I bet if I said that we live in a country that likes trading spaces, you'd know what I was talking about. Or if we live in a country that likes to watch extreme makeovers, you'd know what I meant. If you turn on the television, you will see all kinds of programs that are designed to show us a, a room or a portion of a house that looks terrible. It's got old furniture in it, it's disorganized, it's messy. People come in, by the end of the show, it's a totally different room. It's got new paint, new furniture, who knows how much money was spent on it, but it looks great. And we like to tune in to see how it's going to end, don't we? We're fascinated with seeing things transformed. We like to see something in the before picture, and then we like to see the after picture, to see what happens. That extends not only to our houses or rooms that we live in, that extends to ourselves. We like to see people on television shows who decide they want to have extreme makeovers, and so they've got certain things about themselves they don't like. The beginning of the episode, uh, they list out all these things they want to change, and then through a variety of methods, they start eating right, they start exercising, maybe they get the right haircut or the right clothes, and at the end of the show, they're a totally different person than when they began. We like to watch that. We like to see the before picture and the after picture. And it doesn't matter what kind of exercise equipment or diet you're marketing. More than likely, if you're using a commercial to try to convince people to use your product, you're going to show them before pictures and after pictures. We like that. We like to see things transform. This morning, we're going to talk about transformation. But it's a transformation that goes so much deeper than what we look at in society than what America seems to be infatuated with. It's so much deeper than just an extra coat of paint in a room in your house. So much deeper than a new haircut or a new wardrobe. We're going to talk about spiritual transformation. And as we look at God's Word this morning, I want to warn you that we're going to enter into this discussion at our own risk. That is, we're going to read some pretty challenging and convicting things that God has to tell us through His Word this morning. And I hope you'll join me in, in being convicted and challenged by what we read. But we're going to have to make a choice. When we're confronted uh, with what we read this morning, we're going to have to decide either to use it or not to use it. That's a choice we're going to have to make. What are we going to do with this knowledge once we've been given it? So let's look at what God has to tell us about being transformed, and then we'll make that decision. If you haven't already, I'd invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 4. Uh, the verse that Doug read for us. And while you're doing that, I do want to say that we are very excited. If you are visiting with us, especially because of Bible Class Emphasis Day, or if you're just in the area, we're thrilled you're with us. 
We will be eating lunch in several places after we're done with worship here. We'd invite you to stay with us, even if you're just passing through. There'll be some groups there, some adult classes. I'm, I'm pretty sure you could convince them to share it a little bit. Uh, we'll be eating in Fellowship Hall, the lower Fellowship Hall, and some other classrooms and various other places. But we're glad that you're here with us for this Bible class emphasis day, and we want to, to share our studies with you and let you see how we're working. We're not perfect, but working hard to serve a perfect Lord. As we think about this verse in, in Philippians, the reason that I asked Doug to read that is that this verse is our theme for the 2004-2005 year in our education program. Now, it may sound odd that this is the theme, but let's, let's look specifically at what Paul has to say for us here in verse 9. Let's begin with verse 8, which sets the stage. He says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And then look at verse 9. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. You see, Paul set the stage a little bit in verse 8 by telling Christians what we should think about, where we should put our minds, things that are pure, that are excellent, that are praiseworthy. Those are the things we should think about. But notice that he follows that up in verse 9. You've got the right things to think about in your mind, but the things that you've received from me, don't just think about them, do them. And our theme this year in our education program is sharing information that causes transformation. You see, God has given us the information in His Word. Our job is to make that transformation take place in our lives. And all this year in our Bible classes, we'll focus on ways we can apply God's Word in real and meaningful ways in our lives. We're looking for ways that we can make God's Word a reality in the way that we live. I want to share with you a challenging thought You've probably heard the expression that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I'd like to share with you something else I think we learn in the Old Testament. James would put it this way. He would call us not to be, uh, to be doers of the Word and not hearers only. Think about this statement. People won't care how much Scripture you know until they know how much Scripture you live. Just roll that around in your head for a second. People won't care how much Scripture you know until they know how much Scripture you live. You see, we see this all over the place in the New Testament. James would call us to do God's Word, not just to hear it, but to do it. Paul is telling us that those things you've received and heard from me, do these things and the God of peace will be with you. Did you ever notice how Jesus determined uh, who were followers of His? Over and over in His ministry, we read Him saying, Blessed are those who hear my words and do them and obey them. You see, there's something else besides just receiving the information. We have to do something with it. And oftentimes, people aren't going to care how much Scripture we are able to quote unless they see us living that Scripture out in our lives. It's a challenging thought to realize that people aren't going to be impressed if I can quote the parable of the Good Samaritan if I'm not looking for ways to help others, if I'm not looking for ways to show love, that's not going to be very effective. It doesn't matter if I know the story of the prodigal son backwards and forwards, if I'm not living that out in my life, if I'm not accepting those people who come back to God's church seeking forgiveness, then I'm not going to be very effective. You see, not only should we know the information, but we should live it out in our lives. Not be just hearers, but doers. And so this morning, I'd like for us to challenge ourselves to find ways we can, we can transform ourselves 
more into the image of Christ. And we're going to look at that thought for a few minutes this morning. What is transformation? What does transformation mean? I'd like for us to look at two places where the Apostle Paul, the same one who wrote Philippians 4.9, talks about transformation. And the first place is in Romans chapter 12. If you'd look with me in Romans chapter 12, especially in verse 2, Paul writes these words, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may approve what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, the word that Paul uses here, the word that means transformed, is used four times in the New Testament. It's used in this passage, and it's also used in the passage we're about to look at. The only other two places we find it are in the gospel accounts of the transfiguration. You remember where Jesus led Peter, James, and John up to a high mountain? They were away from everyone else, and then Jesus was transfigured. His clothes became as white as snow. In fact, there was a brightness, a glow that was radiating from him. That same word that describes the transfiguration of Jesus... Paul uses here to describe us being transformed, not conforming to the world's pattern, but being transformed into something different, something different than the world. You know, on the Mount of Transfiguration, if you were to look up there and try to find out which one was Jesus and which one was Peter, Andrew, James, or Peter, James, or John, you'd probably be able to figure it out pretty quickly. There was a vast difference between Jesus who was being transfigured and the humans that were there with him. The same thing is true for us. If we're going to be transformed, we're going to be different than the world around us. Not conformed into the mold that the world would try to impose on us, but to be different. And it's not easy. Paul is, is, is calling us to a life that, that isn't easy, but it's something we're commanded to do if we're going to transform ourselves. That's one key element of transformation, being different than the world. Let's look at the other key element. It's also in a writing of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. We read that same word when Paul would write this. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Literally there, he writes, from one degree of glory to another. In other words, if we're looking at the image of God, we are seeking in our lives to have a concentrated effort to become more like Him. God has made Himself known through Jesus Christ who lived in this earth as a human being. If I want to be more like God, then I'll look at the picture that I see in the New Testament of Jesus Christ, the way that Jesus acted when He lived on this earth, and I want to conform into that image. I want to be transformed to be more like that. So we're going to think about transformation this morning. And we're going to look at a few aspects of transformation from the author of these words, from the life of the Apostle Paul. And what we're going to do is look at a before picture of Paul and an after picture of Paul. You see, we like the before-after comparisons, so we're going to look at the before picture of Paul uh, that we see in his road to Damascus experience. Now, there is a literal picture on the screen. Obviously, uh, that is a painting uh, by Simon Vouet of a young Saul on the road to Damascus. And the reason I wanted us to think about this is to think about what Saul was before he became the apostle. You know, it's so easy for us to look at the great things that Paul did in his life and not realize the type of life he was living before that happened. If you would, turn with me to Acts chapter 22. 
we'll think about the before picture of Saul in Acts chapter 22. Specifically, let's read as he addresses uh, this Jerusalem mob. Let's read beginning in verse 3. Paul says, I am a Jew born of Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you are today. Here Paul, towards the end of his life, is revealing to us how he was at the beginning of his life. And he's letting us know that he is from Tarsus. Now, a few verses earlier, he would describe Tarsus as no insignificant city. He would say, I'm from Tarsus, it's no insignificant city, and it wasn't. In fact, Tarsus was located along a major trade route. And so it was a pretty large area of industry, of commerce. Saul would have grown up, uh, before he became Paul, he would have grown up in a diverse culture. He would have seen many different kinds of people travel through. He would have had a variety of different experiences before he came to study at the feet of Gamaliel. He mentions in verse 3 that he also sat at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the most respected teachers of Jewish law. And by the time he came to Gamaliel, he could probably already uh, speak Greek, Latin, Aramaic. And then after his time with Gamaliel, he would have been thoroughly trained in the law. And so here you have a young man who would have been smart, who would have had all the tools he needed, all of the connections he needed in the Jewish uh, hierarchy of, of Pharisees and the Pharisaical power. He would have been an, an up-and-coming star for Judaism. He was from Tarsus. He was educated under Gamaliel. But do you know what else? he admits to doing in verse 4 of Acts 22. He says, I persecuted this way, with a capital W, uh, to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. Is also the high priest and all of the council of elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brethren, started off for Damascus in order to bring those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. Later, Paul would admit to having such a desire to hunt down these Christians that he even tried to force them into blasphemy in public just so he could capture them. We read about that in Acts chapter 26. Paul had a real desire in doing what he thought was serving God to capture those who were Christians, to capture those who were followers of Jesus. And this was something that was intense within him. I think sometimes we forget the radical shift from Saul of Tarsus to the Apostle Paul. I think we need to remember what Saul of Tarsus was like before we can really appreciate what the Apostle Paul is writing to us. So we see the before picture. We see Saul, someone who's breathing murderous threats against those who follow Christ. He's an up-and-coming star. He's got political power. He's got all the right connections. And he's ready on the road to Damascus to bring Christians back to Jerusalem to imprison them. And so he talks in this passage about what happened on that road to Damascus experience. I'd like for us to look at Acts chapter 9. So if you would flip back a few more chapters, we'll read what Acts 9 has to say about Paul's Damascus Road experience. We see it in the very first verse of chapter 9. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, once again, capital W, referring to the way of Christ, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem as he was traveling it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. 
Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Here we see a dramatic turning point in the life of Saul of Tarsus, and later he would become the Apostle Paul. Let's look at the after picture of the Apostle Paul. We've seen the before picture. The after picture of the Apostle Paul is someone who wrote 13 of our New Testament books. He wrote several letters to churches, not just to churches, but to young men whom he had cared for and whom he had a great, uh, almost a paternal love for as, as their father in the faith. As you look at this picture of an older Paul as, as drawn by Rembrandt, someone who is looking over his, his parchments, studying letters, and of course he was inspired by God to give divine guidance to these churches. He also suffered for his faith in several different ways. You can't read through the book of Acts without seeing Paul suffering through his faith. And that 2 Corinthians 11 passage gives us some details about how many times he was in prison, how many times he was tortured, and how many things he suffered to spread God's word. We also see that this was a man who at the end of his life could write a letter to Timothy saying, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race. Now how did we get to that picture of Paul from the before picture of Saul of Tarsus? How did that happen? I'd like for us to look at a few principles from Saul's conversion into Paul that tell us about transformation. And as we look at that, let's think of how we can apply those principles in our own life. The first thing I think that Paul shows us about transformation is that transformation is an inside-out process. When we watch television shows where people get their house redecorated or they get themselves made over, that's working from the outside in. Spiritual transformation is different than that because spiritual transformation works from the inside out. And as we look through the Bible, we see a common thread running through that God is concerned with the inside things of our lives. God would tell Samuel that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And that has always been true of God. And that always will be as we think about our spiritual lives. As we think about what it means to transform from the inside out, we read what Paul wrote in Romans, and we see that he asks us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And throughout the Bible, we see the, the thoughts of the mind and the thoughts of the heart closely related. Just like you or I would say that something tugged on our heartstrings or it really touched our heart. We're not talking about our physical organ. But we're talking about our, our, our inner mind, our, our inner self that asks those questions. And so we read all throughout the Old Testament and New Testament the importance of the heart, the importance of what's on the inside. One of the Proverbs, I think, captures this principle beautifully. Proverbs 27 and 19 says, As in water, face reflects face, so a man's heart reveals the man. In other words, if you wake up early and you walk out to the pond and, and you're ready to spend some time alone in nature, if you look down at that still water, and if it's clear enough, it will give you a fairly accurate reflection of yourself. And here we read that just as the face of that surface of the water will give us a representation of our face, if we look at our heart, that will let us know what the inner man is like. The heart reveals the man. I don't know about you, but that's convicting. A lot of us spend a lot of time in, in the mirror working on our physical appearance. I wonder when the last time was we checked the mirror of our heart. I wonder when the last time was we examined our spiritual being, our spiritual person. The heart reveals the man. And that's why all throughout the Old Testament, you see that concern that God has with the heart. Obviously, God understands the way that we work. 
And what's interesting is right around the time of Noah, when God decided that he was going to flood the earth, there's a verse in in, uh, Genesis 6 and verse 5 that I think is very insightful. Because in Genesis 6 and verse 5, when God is contemplating what is going to happen, he is upset not just because of the wickedness of man, but because the, the intents of the thoughts of his heart was evil all the time. The intent of mankind's thoughts, the thoughts they had in their heart, were all evil. Not only was God worried about the fact that mankind was wicked, but the fact that their thoughts were evil, that everything inside them was evil. That's what they were desiring. You see, the heart is very important. The Proverbs writer in 3, in verse 3, would talk about writing these words in the tablet of your heart, ingraining them in your heart. That's where the change is going to take place. If we want to change our spiritual being, if we want to be transformed into the image of Christ, it's going to have to begin from the inside out. You see, that happened for Saul of Tarsus. Saul received a word from Jesus. We've received a word from God as well. And as he listened to the voice of Jesus, he had three days alone to think about what had happened. Isn't it interesting that Paul didn't have his sight during that time? Paul was alone with himself, reflecting on what had happened, reflecting on what had taken place with Jesus speaking to him and then what was about to happen. As God continued to give him instruction, God would send Ananias. Ananias would baptize him. Saul would become Paul. And he would begin that process of transformation. You see, it's an inside-out process. It's not something we can accomplish by changing outer appearances. It's something we can only accomplish by starting from the inside and working our way out. Spiritual transformation is an inside-out process. It's also important for us to remember that spiritual transformation is a difficult process. We never read anywhere in the New Testament where the inspired writers tell us, well, don't worry, once you become a Christian, it's going to be easy. In fact, when you look at Paul's life and see all of the difficulties all of the circumstances he had to face, all the trials he had to cross through in becoming a Christian, uh, we quickly understand that it's going to be a difficult process. Spiritual transformation is going to be difficult. Nonconformity to the world's pattern is difficult. I want you to think about how Saul of Tarsus would have grown up. Can't you imagine that Saul would have been a people pleaser? It seems to me, looking at Saul's background, as he described himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees, that Saul would have been someone who had all the right answers in class. I would imagine him as a star student. I would imagine he was the kind of person that all of the older Pharisees and all of the Jewish officials loved. They saw a lot of potential in Saul. He met everybody's expectations. And he was exactly what they were looking for, exactly what they wanted to train up. And then as he comes face to face with that light on the road to Damascus, as he realizes the change that's going to take place, can you imagine how difficult it would have been for him to leave all that behind. It was his entire life. It was everything he had been raised with. He'd been raised to believe a certain way and now he's faced with something else and he's going to have to not conform to his world, the world he lived in. He's going to have to be transformed. Can't you imagine that would have been difficult? Can you imagine him thinking about coming back and and seeing his old friends, the teachers that he had respected and studied with for so long, looking them in the face and telling them what he thought now? Can you imagine trying to explain how he left with letters to go capture Christians, maybe even kill Christians, and now he wanted to go and disciple and make more Christians? He wanted to go and convert other people to Christianity. Can you imagine how that explanation would have taken place? You see, he was put in a very difficult spot. And what's interesting is that when Saul eventually, uh, when Paul eventually comes back to the place where he had been, Saul of Tarsus, when he comes back to Jerusalem, not only would he have faced those difficulties, that would be bad enough, 
But notice what happens in Acts chapter 9 and verse 26 when he tries to associate uh, with the Christians. Uh, read with me, if you will. Let's look in the ninth chapter of Acts and we see what happens when Paul comes and, and tries to get together with those who are his brothers in Christ. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing he was a disciple. You can only imagine the paranoia that would have been flying through their minds. You can only imagine their thoughts. The last time I saw him, he was out to kill people like me. I wonder what he's doing now. I wonder if he's trying to weasel his way in somehow. Maybe he's a spy. I don't know what he's up to, but I don't believe him. You see, Saul faced some serious difficulties as the Apostle Paul. When he turned his life around and began that process of transformation, it was difficult. In fact, it was difficult his entire life. But when he writes that statement to Timothy that he's fought the good fight, that he's finished the race, he talks about the crown that was set before him, his hope of heaven. And all those difficulties seem to wash away in the glory of the goal that stands just within his reach. You see, spiritual transformation is a difficult process. And thirdly, I think probably the most challenging aspect for us to, to really comprehend is that spiritual transformation is an ongoing process. In other words, I'm never finished. I'm never finished trying to be more like God. I'm never finished trying to be more like Christ. And it doesn't happen overnight. You see, when we look at the book of Acts, we don't see what happened to Paul immediately after he became a Christian. But Paul does write about that and kind of enlighten us into what took place uh, in his letters in the New Testament. If you would, please look with me as we read together in Galatians chapter 1. Galatians 1 and verse 17, Paul gives some insight into what took place immediately after he became a Christian. Galatians 1 and verse 17, Paul would write these words. Let's begin in verse 15. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. You see, immediately after Paul became a Christian, he didn't start his first missionary journey. Apparently, he spent some time away. Before he entered Damascus that we read about in Acts, apparently he spent a great deal of time in Arabia, in a place that was a little more deserted, with a little more solitude, to begin that process. It was an ongoing process. It didn't just happen overnight. Catherine's teaching third grade this year at Good Pasture, and one of the things they're going to learn is how to write in cursive. And if you remember being in third grade, that is a big deal, and that's exciting. It was exciting for me, at least, in third grade. There are some who say, I still don't know how to write in cursive, but it's a very exciting experience. And can you imagine if the first day of class, Catherine had all the cursive letters written on the chalkboard, and then she went through and explained what each one was, and then the next day, when they came in, their first assignment was to give a 100-page essay in cursive. Can you imagine the kinds of complaints that would come from the children? I can imagine the phone calls we'd get uh, from their parents at home. Can you imagine? And what if, what if Catherine were to say to him, well, I went over all the letters yesterday. Come on, give me an essay. Let's keep them coming. They're due in 20 minutes. You see, the reason that's so difficult for us to understand is because we know a concept like that doesn't come overnight. We know that skills like that don't happen overnight. We know as we sit and watch the Olympics that people who were competing in those events didn't get that way overnight. Those who were running those relay races in the Olympics weren't just sitting in their chairs a couple weeks ago and got a call from somebody and decided to hop on a plane and go to Greece and compete. This is something they've worked for. It's been a process. 
And we're willing to accept that in every other aspect of life, but sometimes we expect our spiritual lives to be an instant transformation. You know why we like before and after pictures? I'm convinced the reason we like before and after pictures is because we don't like to think about the in-between pictures. Have you ever thought about that? When you're looking at the before and after pictures of someone remodeling a house, you don't usually see a lot of the in-between pictures. In fact, on these television shows, it wouldn't be very popular if the end of the show just had the house kind of half-painted with some carpet that was kind of installed and some of the furniture was still in boxes. We like to see the finished product. And so sometimes we forget that it takes work to get to that point. We forget that to go from Saul of Tarsus to the Apostle Paul took work. It was an ongoing process of spiritual transformation, trying to be transformed into the image of God. And so as we think about this ongoing process that takes place, we need to realize that it's not going to happen overnight. We even see a process in Paul's life. In 1 Corinthians 15.9, he would refer to himself as the least of the apostles. But later in his ministry, in 1 Timothy 1.15, he calls himself the chief of sinners. You see, even in Paul's ongoing process, he was gaining uh, new senses of, of humility, new senses of God's grace and what God has done for him. That same process should take place in our lives. Improving us, ourselves spiritually is going to take some time. So as we think about these three aspects of spiritual transformation, let's think about the fact that it's inside out. And we understand that it's a difficult process and it's going to be an ongoing process. The blessing we have is that we're going through that process all of us together. And I don't know what your situation here is this morning. It could be that you're here and this is one of the first times you've studied the Bible. This is maybe one of the first times you've been to church. And as you think about this message, the first thing that comes into your mind is, well, there's no way that can apply to me. Maybe to somebody like Paul, but not to me. There's no way. You don't understand what I've done. You don't know my past. There's no way God can use me. You see, taking imperfect, sinful people and turning them into effective Christian servants is God's specialty. It's what He does better than anything else. No one can do it like God can because no one can offer us that chance for spiritual transformation, spiritual redemption. And when we put Christ on in baptism, we're not at the finish line. We're at the starting line of every day living our lives out, trying to transform them into the image of Christ. We are left here with the decision. If we want to become more like Christ, we might have to make some changes. We might have to change our attitudes. We might have to change the way we live. I'm reminded of a story you may have heard of, of two men who were very accomplished hunters and they had hired a, a plane to fly them into the far north and they were going to hunt for elk. And they had done it before and so the pilot took them up there. They had a great trip. They had six big elk. And so they were very excited. They had some big bucks there and they were going to load them back onto the plane. The pilot said, now wait a minute, we can only fit four of these. Two of them are going to have to stay here. Well, the hunters looked at each other and they said, well, we went last year. We caught the same number of elk and, and we put them all on the plane last year. I mean, this, we've done this before. And so they kept saying that. And finally, the pilot relented and said, well, all right, if you say so. They got on in the plane and surely enough, 15 minutes into the flight, the engine started to sputter. The plane started to plummet to the earth. It crashed down, landed among a group of trees. And as the pilot unstrapped himself and pulled himself out of the wreckage, he looked at the other two hunters who were talking and pointing. And he asked them, he said, do you know where we are? And they said, oh, yeah. Yeah, this is about a mile away from where we crashed last year. 
when you think of a story like that, what I don't want us to do is leave here this morning content to always do what we've always done. I know I don't want to leave here that way. I am convicted and challenged when I look at Paul's life. I am convicted and challenged when I think about the process of spiritual transformation. Let's leave here determined to do better, determined to become more like the image of God. You see, when we're faced with this information, we have to make a decision. We've entered it at our own risk, and now we're going to have to decide what we're going to do with it. What are we going to do with it? We've got our before pictures right now. What is our after picture going to look like? At the end of our lives, what do we want our spiritual being to resemble? If you're here this morning and you're afraid that you've done too much in your past and that God couldn't use you, I want to share with you one last story from the New Testament. In the second chapter of Acts, Peter looked at a group of thousands of people who had been complicit in the death of Jesus Christ. In other words, they had put to death the Son of God. And as they were cut to the heart and they didn't know what to do, they asked him, what should we do? We've, we've been involved in one of the worst crimes imaginable. We have crucified the Son of God. Peter looked them in the eyes and said, you can receive forgiveness. And no matter what sins you have in your life right now, the great message of the gospel is you can receive forgiveness. I'm convinced that if Peter were standing here today, he would look you in the eyes with that same message. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ to receive forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. That same message is here today. You want to begin that process of transformation? We're in it together. You can begin with us right now as we stand and as we sing.